Uh, I'm Russ Campbell. I am the right supporter to the vice grand of Columbia Lodge number two for the year of 2020. And uh, the thing I have loved about our lodge this year is our vice grand has done a brother check-in program. So when our lodge uh, separated, he just really, really encouraged us to check in with our brothers via text message, Facebook, whatever it was, so that we maintain that FLT connection. Welcome to the Modern Goat Rider podcast. The opinions expressed by our hosts and guests are strictly their own and do not represent the positions of any lodge, grand lodge, or other branches of the independent order of Odd Fellows. Our conversations will be open to the public for the purposes of inspiring our global membership and promoting the order. And now, let's continue the journey. podcast i'm billy sanderson and i'm josh miller how are you doing today josh fantastic billy i'm back on my a game feeling well rested uh happy about life and uh excited to be uh doing a podcast with uh you my main man billy sanderson oh thank you very much brother miller that's awfully kind uh we have uh as always you know, great guests we have great people we find people Sometimes there are nooks and crannies and you get a chance to talk to them like our brother, uh, Michael Douglas, who is doing a uh, cartoon on encampment. Mm-hmm. There's a nook and cranny kind of story. Yeah, that was deep but, in a cranny. Yeah, but this story has been sitting in front of us for so long. We have our name, Modern Goat Rider, and there's a museum about riding goats. <laughs> it is. It's an amazing story. I mean, this place, I just... I. The thought of it, um, it inspires me. Uh, after you hear this uh, interview, you're going to want to take a trip. And yeah. um, wow, I was take just, it was, that was a really, this is a really fun interview. And uh, we can't thank uh, John enough for and, it. it was great. And you're going to take two trips. You're going to take a trip on an airplane. And then you're going to take a trip on a oh, goat. goat. <laughs> uh, so uh, before we lead into this, so we're, we're going to be talking to John Goldsmith of Illinois, who is the curator and uh, possessor of the artifacts at the DeMoulin, 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 DeMoulin DeMoulin Museum. But before we get to that, I kind of want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the, the positioning of uh, what we're going to talk about, and, and goats, and even modern goat rider. And I have an excerpt here from 1867 from the Oddfellows Pocket Companion by Ridley and Donaldson. So Ridley, he's a co- he is a he is the emperor co-emperor-ish of Oddfellowship in North America. And I just have this excerpt that I will read verbatim. So is it a small book? Is it a like in a pocket book? Yeah, it it would fit in a uh, gentleman's breast pocket while he was waiting in the ante room, he probably would flip it open and joyfully read some of the contents. Let's hear some. 
We have sometimes thought that Oddfellows themselves have been to blame for the opposition our secrets have encountered. They are not, in all cases, sufficiently careful in their conversations on this subject. Indeed, they have misrepresented facts by absurdly hinting to their friends and neighbors that there is something in our rites and mysteries extremely awful or ridiculous. They have mischievously pretended that the candidate of odd fellowship must undergo a certain terrifying ordeal or that they must ride a goat. We contend that all this is not only foolish, but scandalous. No brother has a right to bring reproach upon the order by pulmitating such trash. Whoa. There it is. So here we are. A hundred and fifty-three years, fifty-four years later, and we put it right in our name. And yep. we're saying we're proud of this. We're proud of the silliness. Um, and uh, I think riding a goat is important. I think it's an important phrase. Well, yeah. I mean, I never really understood it, you know, until we got into it on this podcast. But yeah, it's a, it's it's an important phrase. And, um, you know, I think some of the, you know, to the general public, um, being a little scandalous and, uh, you know, having people fear maybe um, initiation uh, in some way is kind of it kept out the riffraff. <laughs> you know, there's a <laughs> lot of benefits to joining the odd fellows. And if you had to actually commit to uh, some of the um, possibly painful or uh, humiliating or um, scary, uh, you know, initiation tasks, well, then, you know, that's what you had to do to be able to be uh, have the benefits of being an odd fellow. Yeah. I mean, before my initiation, I did <laughs> as much research. I was on Google like crazy trying to figure out who these guys are because my sponsor just sort of said, yeah, we do this stuff and we do that stuff. And we do a lot of great things for the community, but you're going to be initiated. And it was like, what, what, mm -hmm. what? And so right up until the door, I was like, okay, something weird happens. I know all these guys. I know them all. They're normal guys. We've right. sat around, talked. We've had beers. Everything's fine. But some something's going to happen on the other side of this door that I should actually be worried about. Right, right. And it was true. <laughs> <laughs> For all those people out there, it's all true. It's it all true. true. It yeah. is true. Um, so let's not delay anymore. Let's get to the interview because John's amazing. He's solid gold. And uh, we get to do some more modern goat, goat rider gold. Yeah, and wait till you wait till you hear about all the great stuff that uh, has entered lodge rooms at a time. Enjoy. Well, we want to welcome our next guest. Here is uh, John Goldsmith from the Demolin, the Demolin Museum in Illinois. How are you today, John? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be your guest today. Fantastic. So uh, in our introduction, uh, Josh and I shared a bunch of um, newspaper things that had been uh, published here in Victoria about initiation and mm -hmm. ceremony and so forth. So why don't you just, why don't we just throw it over to you and give us the role that you have with the museum and the purpose of the museum, et cetera. 
Well, my role here is uh, I'm the founder of the museum. Um, I'm the volunteer curator, uh, which means that I do everything from uh, um, giving group tours to cleaning the toilets and everything in between. <laughs> but we've got a great group of about, I would say 15 to 20 volunteers that help us here at the museum and also help with our fundraisers. Um, the, the background on the museum, I think is interesting in that I, I'm not a DeMolin. I'm not a member of the family. I'm not a descendant, nor have I ever worked a day at the DeMolin factory here in Greenville, Illinois. My connection is that my mom did, and she was a 50 year employee of DeMolin's uh, until she passed away in 2007. And my mom was not a person who really had hobbies throughout her life. She liked to garden and, and tinker around outside. And about to 2000, she decided to get serious about collecting and preserving the history of this company that she'd worked for for so many years. And somehow or another, I got sucked into this hobby and it really has taken off over the years. Um, I, I tell visitors to the museum that never in my life did I intend to be the DeMolin family genealogist or the historian of DeMolin Brothers and Company. Uh, but over the last 21 years that's happened and it was because of my mom's vision. And uh, after she passed away in 2007, I inherited the collection that she had been working on and I continued to add to it over the years. And in 2010, we launched this museum. It's been, it's been an amazing success. And so the museum for is having its 10th anniversary, I guess, technically, officially last year. Right. Um, unfortunately, you were COVID down and all of that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but the building you're in, you've uh, purchased, you've, where is it located? Tell us a little bit about the building of the museum. Yeah, our original location was in the former American Legion building here in Greenville. And we outgrew that building um, in a couple of ways. We outgrew it first because artifacts continued to come in. And also we had more and more large bus tours of 50 to 60 people that were coming. And it was hard to shoehorn them into the building we were previously in. So a couple of years ago, the building that we're in now became available. And it is uh, originally was an Episcopal church that was built in the 1880s. And uh, a few years ago, it ceased to exist. The building was sitting empty. We had the opportunity to buy it and it's been a great home for us because it provides us with more room. We have a lot of green space that we can do outdoor events. But what's funny to me and ironic and you could call it destiny or whatever you would like to call it. But after we began the process of uh, negotiating to buy this church building and doing the research, we found out that there was a DeMolin family connection. The grandson of Ed DeMolin, Ed DeMolin being the founder of the company, his grandson was a member of this church. And so it just really felt like it was meant to be. And it's been a great home for us the last couple of years. You referenced the COVID and much like every other museum and, and attraction. Yeah, we certainly had a down year last year, but I think we're going to bounce back and we're hoping to see uh, bus tours coming back and group tours and events and special occasions here at the museum again in 2021. And the history of the company, because this company is uh, an important part of fraternal uh, regalia industry mm -hmm. that was massive in the uh, in the early de earlier days of uh, the 1900s, etc. Uh, so give us a little picture of that. 
Well, the company was founded in 1892 by Ed DeMolin. Ed was a photographer here in Greenville. And at that time, Greenville had a population probably of a couple thousand. Uh, and today it has a population of 7,000. So it's still a small, small town. Uh, but when Ed founded the company in 1892, it was originally designed to be a maker of regalia and paraphernalia and side degree items for the modern Woodman of America fraternal organization. You might notice over my shoulder, there's an uh, MWA outfit from the turn of the century that was made by DeMolins. And so that was their initial focus. And how that came about was uh, there was another Greenville man by the name of William Northcott. And uh, Northcott uh, became the head counsel or essentially national leader of the modern Woodman of America. And uh, when he uh, took over the, the helm of that organization, he was looking for ways to increase the membership. And so he got together with Mr. DeMolin, who was a creative guy, uh, and a, an inventor and a tinkerer and had a unique sense of humor as probably an understatement. And uh, he asked DeMolin if there had any suggestions on how to build the modern Woodman of America uh, nationally. And Ed got together with his two brothers. He had an older brother named Erastus. Erastus was a master blacksmith. He had a younger brother, Ulysses, who they called U.S. DeMolin. And these three guys began to dream up these crazy contraptions, the side degree or initiation devices, if you will, that were used by modern Woodman of America and eventually by several other fraternal orders. And that's how it all got started, just by a basic question uh, from, a, from a local guy who was involved with modern Woodman of America. And he approached uh, the DeMolins and it's taken off from there. I might point out that the company is still in existence today and they're a maker of marching band uniforms. So that's a pretty far stretch from going from goats and trick chairs and invisible paddle machines to marching band uniforms, but the company has done it and they're still a very viable, successful company today. And I might add, they're one of the leading manufacturers of marching band uniforms in the world. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, so Josh, he's, he's giving you the opening here. Right. Okay. So uh, John, <laughs> here we go. Uh, fantastic. Um, your website's amazing and I've been perusing it and uh, there's so much uh, to get into, but um, you know, we do initiations within our lodge um, and um, we don't do a lot of hazing anymore, but I thought, you know, I think we do a little more than others because we sometimes, you know, poke our candidates with wooden spears and that kind of thing. But some of the things that <laughs> they used to do back in the day uh, just amaze me. Um, if anybody anybody who hasn't uh, checked out the website, you have to check it out. Um, but can you tell me a little about, so there's like a fake guillotine, a guillotine. Like, do people really use that? I mean, did they? Yeah. They want yeah. What was the why? Is it just to scare the <laughs> is it just to scare the candidate so much during uh, some sort of initiation? Is that what the most of these devices were used for? Well, Josh, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked the question why over the last twenty some years, and I'll try to explain it the best way I can and put it into some kind of of a of a, 
a perspective that we can understand. And I tell the, uh, the visitors to the museum, you can't try to understand these things in today's world. You've got to go back in time. You've got to go back to the 1890s, early 1900s, up through about World War One. It's a different world. It's a different, um, it's a different feeling, a different approach, and a different, uh, I guess, style of humor and, and a lot of things. And so uh, this was meant for fun in the lodge room. That was the DeMolin motto, fun in the lodge room. And so they were trying to make the lodge proceedings uh, interesting I think interesting <laughs> interesting shocking in some ways and um, to make it fun now the fun of course was for the guys that were doing the initiating the guy that was being initiated probably not so much having fun but of course once he became part of, of the order he got to have a great time watching the next guy down the down the line getting initiated so that's some of the background to it and you, you know, you guys know this, and, and I think probably the, the folks that are watching this will understand that fraternalism was uh, very pur purposeful at that time. First, uh, if you belong to Modern Women of America, Women of the World, some of the other organizations that sold insurance, there was a practical reason for wanting to belong to the lodge, but also at a time where before organized sports and before, you know, you go down to the bowling alley and, and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, roll a few games with the guys or, you know, it provided that social aspect so that, uh, quite honestly, guys had a chance to get out of the house and get away from the wife and kids and they could go to the lodge and hang out with their lodge brothers and talk about what was going on in their community or talking about what was going on in the country and, uh, and maybe have a little fun uh, putting somebody in the trick chair or uh, the guillotine or giving them a goat ride. Uh, that was all part of it as well. So, Again, you need to think about these things from the perspective of, say, circa 1900 and not uh, 2021. However, I will tell you that we have a lot of school groups that come into this museum and, and other tour groups, and these things are still enjoyed today. Um, pieces like the electric branding iron and the lifting and spanking machine, we demonstrate those to tour groups and people still get a chuckle out of them today as much as they did then. So uh, I, I, some people describe it as sort of a three stooges sort of sense of humor. And I guess that it is, but it's still found humorous today by a lot of people that visit the museum. For sure. And for, for people out there who haven't visited the, um, the website or the museum, which, oh, man, I, I, is there anything else happening in Greenville that I can attract my wife there? Because um, I don't know if we would just go, she would be into just going to... Uh, this museum, but um, that would be my highlight of the trip. Is well, there anything we'll find else something to keep her occupied while you're here. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so the one thing that one of the things um, that I loved was is the electric branding machine. And for people who haven't taken a look at this, <clears throat> you can just imagine someone you're 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 entering a secret fraternity, a secret order, and uh, you've just gone through a bunch of different things, and and now the head of your fraternity or your, your secret society has said. It's time for you to be branded. Uh, your shirt is ripped from your body. You're strapped to a chair or held down by your future brothers or sisters. And someone comes at you with a branding iron. A but it's not, really iron. A, it's not really a branding iron, is it? 
way it is. It's the old switcheroo. And the way the electric branding iron stunt worked is they had a real branding iron and they would take it and then we'd get it hot in the stove. And if you think back in those days, there was probably one of those big pot bellied stoves in the middle of the room that kept the whole room warm and they'd stick it in there and they'd get it hot. And the guy thinks he's going to get that brand and they would hoodwink him or they might spin him around and they'd zap him on the small of the back, not with the hot branding iron, but with a fake branding iron that's hooked to a magneto. You crank up the magneto, create a little electric current, give the guy a little zip, a little jolt, and he's been branded. <laughs> and, and, and scared, scared, scared out of his wits. Yeah. And, well, uh, we've got, we do have one here in the museum. It's from around the turn of the century. And we do demonstrate it here at the museum. It still works. I couldn't tell you how many people I've branded over the, the 11 years that this museum now has been open, but uh, it'll give you a nice little uh, wake up call. How's that sound? Sure. Nice little shock. <laughs> um, and then again with the, the fake guillotine, and then there's the the, the old classic magic knife trick, uh, yep, where you stand board. against a wall and someone pretends to throw a knife, and something shoots out beside your head. I mean, these are just, you know, if, if we had these in lodge now, I think it would be an attraction. I think it would well, be something I, that people would really love. When you visit the museum, I would be more than happy to strap you to the knife board and we'll throw knives at you and we'll even strap you in the guillotine if you wish. John, you can strap me to anything, okay? <laughs> I am up for it all. And uh, we'll try and have some video <laughs> we'll have some video footage of me being strapped to uh, many different contraptions. You know, that might be our next bumper sticker, the Mullen Museum. You can strap me to anything. Yeah, strap me to anything. I'm in. <laughs> I love it. Um, but Billy's into um, goat riding. So maybe yeah. we can get into that. So so I, I want to talk about goats, and, and uh -huh. uh, I'm looking at a newspaper article from the Victoria Daily Colonist, March 12th, 1893, uh -huh. and it's got the column is giving all kinds of news about odd fellows here. It's got the, each of the lodges reports for the week and so forth, and, and it says uh, that Columbia Lodge number two didn't do much business, but next meeting they're going to be doing an initiation. Mm -hmm. At the bottom of the article, it says, attention of candidates for initiation is calling, is, <clears throat> sorry, is called for the following explanation of what they will expect. And it's quotes, an old maid once said that to become an odd fellow, a man must ride a billy goat, climb a greased pole, and apparently sit for 15 minutes on red hot iron. She, <laughs> she said she knew the latter to be true because so many odd fellows wore long coats for no other purpose <laughs> than to conceal the patches on their britches. All right, so we've talked about branding. Got a grease pole? We do not have a grease pole. I know that there was one in the catalogs that I've seen. I've not actually run across one myself. But your story reminds me of a couple of things. And uh, the goat riding um, imagery was something that's been very prevalent, obviously, in fraternalism long before the Demolins came around. And I think the Demolins took the concept and they made it a very literal thing and created these mechanical goats a variety of them from the Ferris wheel goat to the uh, rollicking Mustang goat to the uh, practical goat, the bucking goat. There was probably about 10 or 12 different goats that they made. And when this museum was started back in 2010, I remember my grandmother telling me 
that uh, my grandfather was a member of the Masons and, and she remembered one night that he said, oh, well, we've got somebody riding the goat tonight. And she always wondered what the heck that was all about, because obviously he didn't say anything other than that. So uh, in my research, what I have found is that especially from those on the outside looking in, um, they would often refer to goat riding, I think, in a very general term to encompass all sorts of initiations that might be done in the lodge. So in some cases, maybe they were riding the goat or they could be doing something else. But the imagery was, oh, well, somebody's going to ride the goat tonight. And that could be a literal thing, a figurative thing, or it could be just some other type of, uh, of initiation. And also in the research I've run across that there were some lodges that did have live goats. And I think over time, these demolin goats probably led to the live goats being phased out. Uh, I think that the demolin mechanical goats were probably much more practical. You didn't have to worry about keeping them fed, and you certainly didn't have to worry about cleaning up a mess after them in your lodge room. Yeah, the the maintenance of a mechanical goat <laughs> is strictly storage, and it can be piled into some dark closet. And maybe a little oiling once in a while, but yeah, yeah, yep, you're right. Billy, Billy, did you hear that? 12 different mechanical goats. I know. 12. <laughs> I know. Do you, how many do you guys have at the museum, John? Uh, well, I'm looking to my left right now, and we have two Ferris wheel goats. Uh, we have two bucking goats, a practical goat, and a low-down buck. So what is that, six? I think we have six goats here, and we're always looking to add more to the Demolin Museum goat stable. Fantastic. Do you hear that? People out in Goatland, your entire bubble could ride a goat at the museum, you know, when you go there. So um, we do have a, six. We, we don't. Six, right? uh, you're safe six riding goats. <laughs> we do not uh, typically restore artifacts. We prefer to keep them in original condition. But there is one goat that we did restore years ago. Uh, we replaced the wool and replaced um, some of the straps on there. And that is the goat that we do give rides on here at the museum. Now, typically that's for school kids because grown adults in this day and age are a little too hefty for the goat. Uh, but we've given, oh golly, hundreds of goat rides to school kids at this museum. And after they ride the goat, they get a, a little button that says, I rode the goat at the Demolin Museum. I want that button. <laughs> I need that button. <laughs> it's another rite of passage. You can wear that button proudly. I would everywhere. <laughs> so in our hall, uh, in amongst our regalia, uh, I have uncovered uh, only one item with uh, the Demoulin name on it. And mm -hmm. that's probably because there were so many regalia companies at the time. And, right. the, and the Dominion Regalia Company... Uh, in camp in Toronto really covered uh, a lot of the lodges in um, in Canada and so all the collections that we've had from closing lodges that have come to us in the Victoria uh, location they're all uh, regalia from uh, Dominion but we do have some spears and some other right. uh, handheld uh, uh, I guess props is what they are. So about your mother's work and, and was she a seamstress? What was, what was going on for her 50 years? And, and obviously we see behind you these costumes, but um, tell us a little bit about making and in the factory. 
Yeah, my mom started there in 1953. She started there uh, actually when she was still in, in high school, and she was a seamstress. And uh, she had told me that one of the first projects she worked on was uh, the electric carpet, which is also known as burning, uh, walking the burning sands uh, within fraternalism. And her job was to sew electrical coil into this carpet. And uh, I assume you guys are familiar with the with the electric carpet? Well, of course, we uh, did it last week, right, Josh? I have no idea what you're talking about, John. <laughs> and Billy, if we did that, I must have been drinking a little bit of wine. You, you might want to drink a little wine before you walk across the carpet. So uh, the electric carpet, the, the uh, initiate would be told to remove their shoes, and they would walk barefoot across this carpet and that at some given point, they would run electric current through that carpet. It would go up through your feet and give you a shock. And it would that's why it was called walking the burning sands. So that was how mom got her start at the factory was, was uh, uh, helping to sew this coil into these electric carpets. And uh, she worked in uh, also they had a cap and gown division for about 60 years from the 1920s through the 1980s. DeMolins also had a division that uh, did caps and gowns for graduation, also choir robes. She worked there for a number of years and then transitioned over to the band uniform division. And her primary job was she created um, the prototypes for the emblems that would go on band uniforms. And then once they were approved by the school, they would go into mass production. So she was a true artist in the things that she could do with the sewing machine. And I'll tell you, as a kid that, that grew up, uh, as the son of, a, of someone who worked at the factory and a talented seamstress. It was great at Halloween. It was fantastic anytime I was in the school play or school musical because I know, always knew mom could make a great outfit for me as well. Wow, that's awesome. And so how many fraternities were uh, being, I guess, catered to uh, by, uh, by the factory? That's a good question. I don't have a solid answer to. Uh, unfortunately, most of those records no longer exist uh, within the factory's archives. But um, the, the best research I can do is if you take a look at a DeMolin catalog, and generally the catalogs from that era, and we're talking 1890s through 1930, those catalogs, if you open them up on one of the first pages, it will have a list of the different fraternal organizations that DeMolins made things for. And so I've never really bothered to compile a list. That's a good question. I probably need to do. But just off the top of my head, I would say probably 30, 40, maybe more uh, that they made things for at one time. Some of them were fly-by-night groups that only lasted a few years. And so... Um, we may never find examples of things that they made for some of these fraternal orders. But we're pretty heavy here at the museum on things from modern Woodman of America, Woodman of the World. Uh, we have a lot of great examples of Oddfellows regalia, probably about 20 to 30 pieces of that from the early years. Uh, another one that I really enjoyed was uh, uh, the Improved Order of Red Men. We have a lot of outfits from that organization. So regalia-wise, we have several examples. And you had mentioned about competitors, and certainly DeMolins had a lot. Ward Stilson is one that comes to mind. And so uh, finding DeMolin regalia uh, you would think that you would find a lot, but sometimes it's kind of hard to come by. And um, the focus, 
I think the focus for the company was certainly on the regalia and the and the initiation devices. But uh, today, um, they certainly are not easy to find. But I'm surprised by how often things do turn up in the marketplace or people that contact the museum with something as well. What, what was our one piece, Billy? Uh, well, it's a spear. Oh, it's a really a nice um, uh, odd fellow logo uh, emblemed mm -hmm. spear tip. And it's on the top of a, an original spear. Now, uh, one of the uh, catalogs that we did find at the muse at our uh, hall and in our museum is a, um, oh, frick, I've forgotten the name of the company. It doesn't matter what the name of the company is, but it's a, uh, it's a 1920s, 1930s catalog. And, mm -hmm. and that it was really fun. Like if, if people can, you know, find one of these or get their hands on it uh, and you flip through it, you'll do what we did, which was flipping through. And we went, oh, look at that. That is the exact yeah. uh, robe that's being worn by this part in initiation. Um, and we had the full outfits. Like we had every piece of it right there. And it was like, okay, so the care was taken for what now turns to be nearly a century of mm -hmm. keeping this robe and this set uh, together. And then it's here in this catalog and it's, and it kind of, I mean, those of us who love history, it's that great connection back to this was really a big, important thing yeah. that for so long people said, we have to keep this. They didn't just throw it out when the seventies came along and they stopped doing right. degrees. The other nice thing about the catalogs, they can be entertaining. Certainly the DeMolin catalogs from this era that had all the initiation devices, you could sit down with one of those for an hour and, and just chuckle the entire time about some of the stuff and, and scratch your head and say, really, they made this stuff? How did they get away with it? And they, they certainly did. Uh, for me personally, part of the fun of finding the artifacts and, and sometimes regalia, as you mentioned, is trying to match match it up with the imagery in the catalog because the you know, it's not like catalogs today where it's a full color photo. These were hand rendered drawings, artists uh, renderings of these various things. And for me, it's fun to find a piece and you look it up in the catalog and you say, wow, you know, this looks spot on. This looks exactly like what this artist rendering looked like in the catalog. And sometimes it's just amazing how much the piece when it was made looked exactly like the image that's so cool you guys you guys have all your catalogs you have a lot of catalogs at the museum oh always on the lookout for catalogs um i would say in the collection probably 80 to 100 catalogs and i don't know how many other pieces of sort of ephemera we might have uh we're missing the first i think six catalogs the oldest one i have is from 1896 the first catalog would have come out in about, I think, October or November of 1895. That's the Holy Grail. I'm hoping that someday we do find that first catalog. And uh, that will be the day I will attempt to backflip. <laughs> okay, well, be Or careful. a cartwheel. If it or happens, be careful, please. Maybe just ride a, goat, <laughs> ride a goat or two instead of trying to backflip, you know? You know, I think I would be safer riding the goat than me trying to do a cartwheel or a backflip. That's what I think, too. <laughs> so when when you've said it a few times so uh you know finding them uh, are you searching are you purchasing are you taking i'm assuming donations you had a great video yep. series where you were opening a box which was yep. so uh, a bit of a jab at the uh 
the fashionistas in their opening shoe boxes and you were opening <laughs> UPS boxes. But uh, tell us how you get stuff. Well, going back to the early years when it was my, my mom and I collecting, we really did a lot of hustling back in those days. And that was going to auctions and going to flea markets and going to antique malls and antique stores and just hitting the road trying to find things as best you could. And then in 2000 and 2004, uh, I wrote and self-published uh, my first book on DeMolins called Three Frenchmen and a Goat, The DeMolin Brothers Story. And we sold 500 copies of that book worldwide. And that really launched this entire crazy DeMolin journey. Uh, once the book came out, then uh, my mom and I had a website called DeMolin Collectors. And that helped us find a lot of the artifacts. And then uh, once the museum opened in 2010, the museum itself has just been a great promotional tool to help uh, unearth artifacts. So it's not so much today going out on the road looking for things, although I still do that from time to time. It's mostly people who will call or email or Facebook message the museum about artifacts. And um, the way the museum is set up, 98% of what's in this building is from my personal collection. Then there are things that have been donated to the museum and some things that have been loaned to the museum. So the way the museum operates, it is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and uh, yours truly and my collection is on permanent loan to this uh, museum as long as the doors are open. So it's a combination of things. I'm still adding things to the personal collection, but then the museum entity itself does own some things that were either donated or perhaps put on loan to the museum. And it is a, a never ending search. There's still things I would like to find. Uh, there's rarely a month that goes by that we don't have anywhere from a half dozen to 10 or more um, emails or phone calls from people who have found things. And a lot of times it's folks just wondering what the heck is this thing that I found? What is it and what does it do? And what's the story behind it? And so it's not always about the museum obtaining pieces. It's sometimes just explaining to folks what it is they have and, and sharing the story with them. And the fundraising, are you, I, you need to do fundraising to support uh, yep. this year, especially with, you know, without those 50 person buses showing up. Um, you're doing a, uh, a brick uh, pathway or a brick uh, purchase? So yeah, that thanks for asking me. about that. It's it's a project that I really love and, and feel uh, very connected to, obviously with my mom being a longtime employee of the company. But we have a brick section in front of the museum where we are selling uh, bricks that celebrate the people that worked at the factory. The bricks are $100 each and you can have three lines of engraved text. And we have about 50 to 60 bricks out there now. We have room for up to 400. And the employees that uh, we have that are honored with bricks so far range from uh, employees that were there in the very beginning to some folks that are currently working there today. And that is an ongoing fundraiser for the museum. And it's great because it honors those employees they could be people that worked there in the past, people that are working there currently, people that are still living, people who have passed away, but it, it draws all of this history together. And as I, as I like to say, every employee of this company is a chapter 
in the history of DeMullen Brothers. And so everybody who is represented in this brick display were an important part of the success of this company and, and the fact that it's still around today after you know, its launch in, in 1892. So, and we do other fundraisers throughout the year. We have a cookout and we do a biscuit and gravy breakfast and we do things like that. Uh, a couple of years ago, we launched a, a silent movie series where we show silent movies on Sundays in September. That's not so much a fundraiser as it is just a fun activity to do. Uh, we've had a ragtime band out of St. Louis, Missouri, come over and do concert, free concerts on our grounds. So we try to do fundraising, but also cultural things, sometimes things not even necessarily related to the to the company, but just unique cultural things that uh, you may not see in this area. So uh, books, you've mentioned the first book, and then I've heard rumors that you're working on another book. Yeah, the first book, uh, Three Frenchmen and a Goat, as I said, it came out in 2004. And occasionally you can still find a copy on eBay. I think that was uh, when I felt like I'd really accomplished something in life when I found my book on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the new book is called Goat Tales, and uh, I'm in the research phase of that book now. Uh, I've spent about the last month and a half going through microfilm and taking a closer look at the uh, old Greenville newspapers from the early 1900s and doing some other research and, and interviewing some former employees that I didn't interview the first go around. And so the first book was more of a chronological logical history of this company from the founding through the different phases and the eras, whereas this is going to be just a collection of stories. Uh, the section I'm working on right now that I think you gentlemen will be interested in um, are stories about lawsuits that were filed involving demolition initiation devices. And I've uncovered probably uh, a dozen uh, from across the United States from the early 1900s through the 1920s. Uh, there'll be stories about uh, more in-depth stories about some of the things that the factory made. We'll feature photos from the catalog. We'll show you what the actual device looks like. We might even incorporate some of the patents from those devices. So uh, Goat Tales will be the name of that book, and I'm hoping that will be out later this year, probably towards late summer, early fall. Wow. That sounds awesome. I, I, I totally I back in the twenties. Hold on, yeah, lot, that's what I want to talk about. Lawsuits. <laughs> back in the twenties, they actually there was or there was people suing the company for accidents that happened during initiations. Is that really what was happening? I knew you were going to ask about that, and there's one story in particular that I'll share with you. I won't go into a lot of great great detail. I'll tease you enough so that you want to buy the doggone book. But there was a lawsuit in South Carolina in 1901 that involved a Woodman of the World Lodge and a goat ride. And uh, this guy claimed that uh, he was handled a little too roughly and he was thrown from the goat and, uh, and he suffered all these different injuries and wounds. And I'm going to quote, of the most distressing nature, end of quote. And so he filed a $25,000 lawsuit back in 1901 against his lodge and against the three members of that lodge who had done the initiation. And the best part of this story, and I still cannot believe it, is that uh, the, the prosecution, they, uh, they called in as their star witness, the goat. And so the lodge had to bring the goat into the courtroom and... The attorney, uh, 
the attorney tried to demonstrate how this goat worked and how dangerous it was, and he couldn't quite figure out how to operate it. So the three guys that were the defendants says, oh, well, we'll go ahead and show you how it works. And one of the guys jumps on the goat and they push him around in the courtroom. And according to the newspaper account, the entire courtroom busted out in laughter. And so it had the opposite effect of what the prosecution wanted. It just showed it was a fun device. And they ended up that the the lodge won the case. And so I, I go into a little more depth uh, in the book about that story and there are others, but can you imagine that was the star witness for the prosecution? We'll call in exhibit A, here's the goat. <laughs> and we're talking about a mechanical goat here, not an actual goat. We're talking about a Demolin mechanical goat. <clears throat> yep. yep. Fantastic. Oh my God. I need that book, Billy. It's a Christmas right. present. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll be ready for Christmas. Will we be yes. ready, John? Oh, I think definitely it's the perfect Christmas gift. There yeah. you go. Perfect Christmas gift for anybody on your um your goat riding, goat land, goat riding uh, list. Right. You betcha. So, John, what's the website for the museum? Our website is demolinmuseum.org, and demolin is spelled D-E-M-O-U-L-I-N, demolinmuseum.org. We're also on Instagram at demolinmuseum, so there's a couple of different ways to stay connected with us. <clears throat> the museum is located in Greenville, Illinois. We are in southern Illinois, about a 45-minute drive outside of St. Louis, and so we've had a lot of visitors who will fly into St. Louis, rent a car, and drive over to Greenville and spend a couple hours at the museum. That's happened a number of times. Uh, we're located on Interstate 70, which is a major coast-to-coast uh, -coast thoroughfare <clears throat> here in the United States, and so we get a lot of visitors from um, across the country and around the world to come to this museum to see all these weird contraptions that we have. And then and I, if you keep driving east, you'll hit Tuscola. Yes, uh, east and a little bit to the north. And we've got some, some dear friends up at Tuscola at the Oddfellows Lodge. And they've done a wonderful job. They're good friends of the museum. And I, I well, I'll, I'll tell you this. One of the nice things about this museum is it has allowed me a lot of wonderful opportunities over the last 11 years. Um, I've had the great honor to uh, speak at the Grand Lodge for the Oddfellows in California a couple of years ago. Uh, I've spoken in Pennsylvania for a Masonic group. I've spoken at a museum in Brooklyn, New York. I've spoken to a, um, a Shriners group in Washington, D.C. So I've traveled the, the, the country telling this story. And I've met so many interesting folks, uh, fraternal folks, and we have friends from coast to coast and, and around the world. And it's just amazing how uh, this, this hobby that began with my mom's desire to preserve the history of this company has grown into what it has. It, it astounds me. And last uh, spring, last March, right before we had to close because of the COVID restrictions, we had a visitor that came in on a Saturday and I thought the guy looked very familiar to me. And he came in with his son. And as I got speaking with him, I realized who he was. And uh, his name is David Eigenberg. And he was this, he's one of the stars of a TV series called Chicago Fire. And he was on his way through the area. His son had found the museum uh, on, um, on a website and said, hey, dad, let's check this place out. And uh, they spent about an hour here. And uh, Mr. Eigenberg gave us a remarkable plug on his Instagram page that was seen by tens of thousands of people. So you never know who's going to stop by this crazy little place and, and check out the goats and spanking machines. 
Yo, you think that's good? Wait till they hear the uh, modern goat rider. Mm. We're talking. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking. Ten, tens well, of it, you know, guys, I, yeah. I would say I appreciate this opportunity because I, you know, I think you can tell I love to tell this story. Um, and I, I love the opportunity to share it. I always appreciate everyone's interest. And again, it just amazes me every time that we do. Uh, I do receive a invitation to, to speak or do an interview. And uh, I, I love the opportunity, but also it helps it helps me keep the my mom's legacy as a, a longtime employee of this company alive. And so it's it's very much appreciated. Well, we appreciate you and all the work that you're doing and um, uh, an amazing guest. Um, but and before we let you go, I've got one word for you and I'll see. It's a hyphenated word. And maybe you can explain to me. Wink a dink. <laughs> what is that? Tell me about wink a dink. I need to know. Well, if you come to the museum and get a goat ride, you will find yourself sitting atop Winkadink. That is the name that we've given our goat that we give goat rides at the museum. And when we opened back in 2010, we had a name the goat contest for area school kids. And the winning entry was Winkadink. And what's great about it, I believe that this, I think the young lady was about eight or nine years old when she won that contest. And then fast forward a few years, when she got into high school, she became a volunteer at the museum, and she continues to be a volunteer at the museum today now that she's in college. And so uh, I, that's the other part of that story I love is, is that uh, who, who won the contest and then later became so engaged in this place, and it's been, become a big part of her life, too. Come to Greensville and ride Winkadink. You bet. And we'll uh, shock you. We'll spank you, you know. Whatever you're in the mood for that day, I think we're we're pretty game here at the museum. You don't have to sell me anymore. I'm I'm signed <laughs> up. Okay. Figure out something for um for my lady and uh, and we got we've got a trip the next trip into the states. You betcha. Thanks so much, John. Thanks for your time. Thank you for your interest in the museum. And uh, the last thing I would mention, if folks have questions about our hours and when we're open, you certainly can go to our website or our Facebook page or our Instagram page, any of those things. Uh, but special tours are always available. If you're traveling through the area and you can't come whenever we're open for regular hours, let us know a couple of days ahead of time. We'll, we'll make sure that we're, we're open for you. And, and that's something that we're always happy to do. Well, that'll do it for us. Josh and I will be back again soon with another episode making Oddfellows discoveries and seeing the Oddfellowship all around us. Cheers, NFLT.